This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this presentation, Dr. Craig speaks on God, C.S. Lewis, and Platonism. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. I am uh, humbled and honored and deeply grateful for the invitation to speak to the C.S. Lewis Society on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. And when I received the invitation to speak, I said, are you sure you've got the right person? I am not a C.S. Lewis scholar, uh, and I don't really have any lectures on Lewis, per se. And I was assured that I could speak on anything that was relevant to my own research, and, uh, and therefore I agreed to do that. You can imagine then my delight when in the course of composing this lecture, I found that Lewis actually did have some relevant things to say about this topic tonight. And so I'll be able to connect uh, what I have to say with a little bit of what Lewis wrote. Central to classical theism is the conception of God as the sole ultimate reality, the creator of all things apart from himself. This doctrine receives its most significant challenge from Platonism, the view that there are uncreated abstract objects, such as numbers, sets, propositions, and so forth. According to Platonism, there are a host of objects, indeed infinities of infinities of things, which are just as eternal, necessary, and uncreated as God. So God is not the sole ultimate reality. Now I should perhaps clarify here that I am speaking not of what has been called lightweight Platonism, but of a heavyweight Platonism. Lightweight Platonism treats abstract objects merely as the semantic reference of certain singular terms, like proper names and definite descriptions. On lightweight Platonism, abstract objects are individuals merely in the sense that Wednesdays and the hole in your shirt are individuals, namely reference of the singular terms Wednesday and the hole in your shirt, but not in a sense that would require God to create such things in order for us to speak meaningfully of their existence. I am talking about a heavyweight Platonism, according to which abstract objects exist just as robustly as the fundamental particles which make up the physical world. Such a Platonism saddles us with a metaphysical pluralism, according to which God is not the sole ultimate reality. Rather, there are infinite realms of beings which exist independently of God. How is this challenge best to be met? It is not to be met, I believe, by theological compromise. For the biblical witness to God's sole ultimacy is both abundant and clear. Undoubtedly, one of the most important biblical texts, both theologically and historically, in this regard is the third verse of the prologue of the Gospel of John. 
Speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ as the logos, or word, John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. All things in the Greek panta connotes all things taken severally, not simply the whole. Of course, God is implicitly exempted from inclusion in all things, since he is already said to have been in the beginning. God and the Logos are not subject to becoming or coming into being, but of being, simpliciter. They simply were in the beginning. Everything other than God and the divine Logos came into being, in the Greek, agenita, through the logos. The verb is the aorist form of ginomai, whose primary meaning is to become or to originate. Verse 3 thus carries the weighty metaphysical implication that there are no eternal entities apart from God. Rather, everything that exists, with the exception of God himself, is the product of temporal becoming. The verb ginomai also has the sense of to be created or to be made. This meaning emerges in verse 3 through the denomination of the agent through whom, or in the Greek, di autou, uh, who is responsible for things coming into being. The preposition dia plus the genitive indicates the agency by means of which a result is produced. The Logos, then, is said to be the one who has created all things and brought them into being. A second, equally significant metaphysical implication of verse 3 thus emerges. Only God is self-existent. Everything else exists through another namely, through the divine Logos. God is thus the ground of being of everything else. John 1.3 is thus fraught with metaphysical significance. For taken prima facie, it tells us that God alone exists eternally and a se. It entails that there are no objects of any sort, abstract or concrete, which are co-eternal with God and uncreated by God via the Logos. Partisans of uncreated abstract objects, if they are to be biblical, must therefore maintain that the domain of John's quantifiers is restricted in some way, quantifying, for example, only over concrete objects. This issue is a subtle one, easily misunderstood. The question is not, did John have in mind abstract objects when he wrote panta di autu agenita? Probably not. But neither did he have in mind quarks, galaxies, and black holes. Yet he would take such things and countless other things were he informed about them to lie within the domain of his quantifiers. The question is not what John thought lay in the domain of his quantifiers. 
The question rather is, did John intend the domain of his quantifiers to be unrestricted once God is exempted? It is very likely that he did. For not only is God's unique status as the only, eternal, uncreated being typical for Judaism, but John himself identifies the Logos alone as existing with God and being God in the beginning. Creation of everything else through the Logos then follows. The salient point here is that the unrestrictedness of the domain of the quantifiers is rooted not in the type of objects thought to be in the domain, but in one's doctrine of God as the only uncreated being. But was John, in fact, ignorant of the relation between abstract objects and divine creation when he wrote verses 1 to 3, as we have assumed? It is, in fact, far from clear that the author of John's prologue was innocent concerning abstract objects and their relation to the Logos. For the doctrine of the divine creative Logos was widespread in Middle Platonism, and the similarities between John's Logos doctrine and that of the Alexandrian Jewish philosopher Philo are striking and numerous. Of particular interest is the role of the Logos as the instrumental cause of creation. The use of dia plus the genitive to express instrumental creation is not derived from Jewish wisdom literature, but is an earmark of Middle Platonism. Indeed, so much so that scholars of this movement are wont to speak of its prepositional metaphysics, whereby various prepositional phrases are used to uh, express causal categories. And here you see how the four Aristotelian causes are expressed through these particular prepositional phrases. Philo identifies the four Aristotelian causes by these prepositional phrases, stating that the phrase through which represents creation by the Logos. The similarities between Philo and John's doctrines of the Logos are so numerous and so close that most Johannine scholars, while not willing to affirm John's direct dependence on Philo, do recognize that the author of the prologue of the fourth gospel shares with Philo a common intellectual tradition of Platonizing interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. Now, John does not tarry to reflect on the role of the divine Logos causally prior to creation. But this pre-creation role figures prominently in Philo's Logos doctrine. According to Philo scholar David Runya, a cornerstone of Middle Platonism was the bifurcation between the intelligible realm and the sensible realm. To draw the distinction in this way is, however, somewhat misleading. The fundamental distinction here, as originally found in Plato, is between the realm of static being 
and the realm of temporal becoming. The former realm is to be grasped by the intellect, whereas the latter is perceived by the senses. The realm of becoming was comprised primarily of physical objects, while the static realm of being was comprised of what we would today call abstract objects. For middle Platonists, as for Plato, the intelligible world, or the cosmos noitas, served as a model for the creation of the sensible world. But for a Jewish monotheist like Philo, the realm of ideas does not exist independently of God, but as the contents of his mind. The intelligible world may be thought of as either the causal product of the divine mind or simply as the divine mind itself actively engaged in thought. Especially noteworthy is Philo's insistence that the world of ideas cannot exist anywhere but in the divine logos. Just as the ideal architectural plan of a city exists only in the mind of the architect, Philo explains, so the ideal world exists solely in the mind of the divine logos. On Philo's doctrine then, there is no realm of independently existing abstract objects. According to Runya, while not part of the created realm, the cosmos noitas, though eternal and unchanging, must be considered dependent for its existence on God. Interested as John is in the incarnation of the Logos, he does not linger over the pre-creatorial function of the Logos. But given the provenance of his Logos doctrine, he may well have been aware of the role of the Logos in grounding the intelligible realm, as well as his role in creating the realm of temporally concrete objects. However this may be, our exegetical study of John 1, 1-3 leads to the conclusion that the author of the prologue of John's Gospel conceives of God as the creator of everything apart from himself. There are no uncreated, independently existing eternal objects, for God exists uniquely a se. I could make exactly the same point from Paul's correspondence, but time compels me to skip ahead. The conviction that God is the creator of everything that exists aside from God himself eventually attained creedal status at the Council of Nicaea. In language redolent of the prologue of the fourth gospel and of Paul, the council affirmed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things came into being. 
The phrase maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible is Pauline and the expression through whom all things came into being, Johannine. The council thus confesses that God alone is uncreated and that all else was created by him. The biblical theist cannot therefore be a Platonist, for Platonism denies that God is the sole ultimate reality. So how shall classical theists best meet the challenge of Platonism? Figure one lays out some of the alternatives. Now in figure one, I have taken mathematical objects as representative of what are typically taken to be abstract objects. One cannot take figure one to be about abstract objects as such because as you can see, one branch of the chart uh, treats these objects as concrete, not abstract. Note as well that what I have called anti-realism often goes under the name of nominalism, but I've avoided that label um, as less clear and potentially misleading. So, consider our options. I take it that a classical theist cannot be an a-realist uh, as his solution. As I use the term, a-realism is the view that there just is no fact of the matter concerning the existence of putative abstract objects. A-realism is not an option for the classical theist, since given divine aseity, God exists in every possible world and is the creator of any reality extra se in any world in which he exists. Therefore, it is a metaphysically necessary truth that no uncreated abstract objects exist. Hence, there is indeed a fact of the matter whether uncreated abstract objects exist. They do not and cannot exist. Thus, our realism with respect to putative abstract objects is necessarily false. Now consider the realist alternatives. The option requiring the least modification of Platonism is absolute creationism. Although there is a tendency to conflate absolute creationism with divine conceptualism, I take the absolute creationist to affirm that mathematical objects are not concrete objects like mental events, but are causally effete objects existing in some sense apart from God, though causally dependent upon him. Unfortunately, absolute creationism appears to involve a vicious circularity which has become known as the bootstrapping objection. The problem can be simply stated with respect to the creation of properties, a paradigmatic case of abstract objects. In order to create properties, God must already possess properties. For example, in order to create the property being powerful, God must already possess the property of being powerful, which involves a vicious circularity. The only plausible way to avoid the bootstrapping problem, it seems to me, is to affirm that God can create a property 
without having the property of being able to create a property. But that just is to abandon Platonism in favor of nominalism, which holds that talk of properties is just a convenient façon de parler. Such a solution removes any motivation for realism. So what about anti-Platonist forms of realism? Anti-Platonist realists hold that various objects normally thought to be abstract, such as mathematical objects, are in fact concrete. These may be taken to be either physical objects, such as marks on paper, which are manipulated by mathematicians according to certain rules, or mental objects or thoughts, either in human minds or in God's mind. The 19th century German philosopher Gottlob Frege subjected the views that mathematical objects are physical objects or human thoughts to such withering criticism that such views are scarcely taken seriously today. But Frege's objections to human psychologism such as the intersubjectivity, necessity, and plenitude of mathematical objects, do not touch divine conceptualism. That Frege could simply overlook what has historically been the mainstream theistic position with respect to putative abstract objects is perhaps testimony to how utterly detached 19th century philosophical thinking had become from the historic Christian tradition. With the late 20th century renaissance of Christian philosophy, divine conceptualism is once more finding articulate defenders. According to these thinkers, putative abstract objects like propositions, properties, possible worlds, and mathematical objects are or are analyzable in terms of God's thoughts of various sort. Conceptualists can meet the bootstrapping objection by denying that prior to God's conceiving them, things like properties, propositions, and the like exist. God can be as he is without exemplifying properties or propositions being true logically prior to his conceiving them. But then, as I noted before, the nerve of realism seems to be cut, so why not simply be an anti-realist? Moreover, conceptualism is not entirely worry-free, for in many cases God's thoughts do not seem suitable to play the roles normally ascribed to abstract objects. Take propositions, for example. Conceptualism requires that God be constantly entertaining actual thoughts corresponding to every proposition. But conceptualists move far too hastily from the fact that God is omniscient to the view that all that God knows is occurrent in consciousness. God's infinite knowledge is clearly not sufficient to guarantee that there are the actual mental events needed by the conceptualist. Indeed, Graham Oppie complains that conceptualism threatens to lead to the attribution to God 
of inappropriate thoughts, bawdy thoughts, banal thoughts, malicious thoughts, silly thoughts, and so forth. For example, consider propositions of the form, for any real number r, r is distinct from the Taj Mahal. Why would God constantly retain such inanities in consciousness? Worse, consider false propositions of the form. For any real number r, r is identical to the Taj Mahal. Why would God hold such a silly thought constantly in consciousness, knowing it to be false? Now, obviously, the concern here is not that God would be incapable of keeping in view a non-denumerable infinity of thoughts uh, ever in consciousness, but rather why he would dwell on such trivialities. Moreover, what has been called the aspectual shape of a thought does not always correspond to the aspectual shape of a proposition expressed by that thought. For example, the thought that I am making a mess has a different aspectual shape than the proposition William Craig is making a mess. God knows the propositional content of my thought without his thoughts having the same aspectual shape as my thought. But if we identify God's thoughts with propositions, we are no longer able to distinguish between the aspectual shape of a proposition and the aspectual shape of a divine thought having that propositional content. Since God has first-person thoughts, identifying God's thoughts with propositions commits us to the existence of purely private propositions, which are incommunicable by God to anyone else. Personal indexical beliefs of this sort are just the proverbial camel's nose. If propositions have the unique aspectual shape of God's thoughts, many other dislocations in how we normally conceive things will be forced upon us. In these and many other ways, the suitability of God's thoughts to play successfully the roles ascribed to various abstract objects is worrisome. Now, I do not imagine that these worries constitute insuperable obstacles for conceptualism. Rather, my reason for raising them is to motivate theists to look more seriously at the cornucopia of anti-realist options that are available today. It is striking how little cognizance contemporary theists who have written on the problematic of divine aseity take of anti-realism. They seem to have absorbed realism with their mother's milk. Now, it is not as though there are overwhelming arguments for realism. The principal argument offered on behalf of realism comes in the various incarnations of Willard Quine's indispensability argument. Mark Balaguer provides a succinct formulation of the indispensability argument as follows. Premise one, if a simple sentence, that is a sentence of the form A is F, is literally true, then the objects that its singular terms denote 
exist. Likewise, if an existential sentence, for example, there is an F, is literally true, then there exist objects of the relevant kind. Premise two, there are literally true simple sentences containing singular terms that refer to things that could only be abstract objects. Likewise, there are literally true existential statements whose existential quantifiers range over things that could only be abstract objects. Three, therefore, abstract objects exist. How might we respond to this argument? Although to my knowledge, C.S. Lewis did not interact with the indispensability argument for abstract objects, I think we have some idea of how he might have responded to it. In his essay, Blue Spells and Flallon Spheres, A Semantic Nightmare, Lewis claims that the greater part of our language is metaphorical rather than literal. Lewis argues that, and I quote, our thought is independent of the metaphors we employ insofar as those metaphors are optional. That is, insofar as we are able to have the same idea without them." End quote. Lewis uses the example of trying to understand unimaginable, higher dimensional realities like curved three-dimensional space on the basis of two-dimensional analogies in flatland. Insofar as one understands the relevant mathematics, one may dispense with the metaphor. But then Lewis proceeds to say, our claim to independence of the metaphor is a claim to know the object otherwise than through that metaphor. That was what happened, you will remember, to the man who went on and learned mathematics. He came to apprehend that of which the flatlander's sphere was only the image, and consequently was free to think beyond the metaphor and to forget the metaphor altogether. In our previous account of him, however, we carefully omitted to draw attention to one very remarkable fact, namely that when he deserted metaphor for mathematics, he did not really pass from symbol to symbolized, but only from one set of symbols to another. The equations and whatnots are as unreal, as metaphorical, if you like, as the flatlander's sphere. It is evident that Lewis is an anti-realist about mathematical discourse, taking it to be metaphorical and its objects unreal. Lewis thinks that in many fields of discourse, the failure to, to realize that one is using dead metaphors with no understanding of their meaning leads to the literal meaninglessness of that discourse. He is more optimistic with respect to mathematical discourse, he says. The mathematician, who seldom forgets that his symbols are symbolic, may often rise for short stretches to 90% of meaning and 10 of verbiage." End quote. Lewis thus thinks that mathematicians themselves realize that their discourse is not literal, but 
metaphorical. Lewis was also apparently an anti-realist about other abstract objects. For example, with respect to universals, he opined, and I quote, the universal, latent in every group and every plural inflection, cannot be thought without metaphor. Indeed, it is likely that he took the whole Platonic host to be creatures of metaphor. For he writes, and I quote, open your Plato and you will find yourself among the great creators of metaphor and therefore among the masters of meaning, end quote. I think that Lewis would therefore challenge premise two of the indispensability argument. He would contend that abstract object discourse is plausibly taken to be metaphorical, not literal, and therefore is non-commissive ontologically to abstract objects. Now, what shall we make of this response? The claim that abstract object discourse in general and mathematical discourse in particular is metaphorical rather than uh, literal is championed today by the philosopher Stephen Yablo, who has coined the term figuralism for the view that such discourse should not be understood literally but is a case of figurative language. Figurative speech, properly interpreted, may be true even if taken literally it is false. For in figurative speech, such as understatement, hyperbole, and metaphor, the literal content is not what the speaker is asserting. If mathematical language is figurative, then it will be maladroit to ask after the ontological commitments of such discourse when construed literally. Yablo observes that figurative language is a pervasive feature of ordinary discourse, so much so that we often do not realize that we are speaking figuratively. Like Lewis, Yablo believes that literal talk is actually the talk that is unusual. This presents a serious problem for Quine's project of determining the ontological commitments of our discourse. Since figures of speech should not be taken literally, Quine recognized that his criterion of ontological commitment could not be applied to such discourse. The situation is problematic because in Yablo's words, to determine our ontological commitments, we have to ferret out all traces of non-literality in our assertions. If there is no sensible project of doing that, there is no sensible project of Quinean ontology. Quine himself looked to science in order to eliminate metaphorical features of ordinary discourse. We are to count a thing as existing just in case it is a commitment of our best scientific theory. But, Yablo demands, what if our best theory itself contains metaphorical elements? Quine never argued that metaphor can be made to disappear entirely. 
If our best theories include metaphorical sentences, then we need a way of sequestering the metaphors. But in order to do that, we need a criterion for identifying an expression as metaphorical, which we do not have. The boundaries of the literal, Yablo maintains, are so unclear that there is no telling in cases of interest whether our assertions are to be taken ontologically seriously. The more controversial of philosophical existence claims are equipoised between the literal and the figurative in a way that Quine's method is powerless to address. Among these will be claims about abstract objects. Yablo thinks that talk of abstract objects involves the use of what he calls existential metaphors. That is to say, metaphors making play with a special sort of object to which the speaker is not ontologically committed. Numerical terms are such existential metaphors, useful and sometimes indispensable for expressing truths about the real world. Yablo provides the following illustration. Much as we make as if, for example, people have associated with them stores of something called luck, so as to be able to describe some of them metaphorically as individuals whose luck is running out, we make as if pluralities have associated with them things called numbers, so as to be able to express, and otherwise hard to express because infinitely disjunctive fact about relative cardinalities, like so. The number of Fs is divisible by the number of Gs. Given our finitude, we cannot express infinite disjunctions, like there is one star and one planet, or there are two stars and one planet, or there are three stars and, and so we have no choice but to resort to number talk in order to talk in this case about stars and planets. Yablo says it is only by making as if to countenance numbers that one can give expression in English to a fact having nothing to do with numbers, a fact about stars and planets and how they are numerically proportioned. Yablo draws a number of very interesting parallels between talk of Platonic objects and figurative talk. These parallels serve as evidence that abstract object talk is a kind of figurative language. Yablo thinks that the decision between Platonism and figuralism depends upon the answers to the following questions. One, what does Platonism, as opposed to figuralism, help us to explain? And two, what explanatory puzzles does Platonism, as opposed to figuralism, generate? Consider first question two. Yablo believes that anti-Platonists have relied too heavily on the explanatory puzzles generated by Platonism, though he takes no cognizance of the theological puzzle which drives our inquiry, namely, 
how the putative existence of abstract objects is to be reconciled with divine aseity and creatio ex nihilo. Given our theological commitments, we know that Platonism is unacceptable. So all we need from Yablo then is some reason to prefer figuralism above other anti-Platonisms. Yablo has done a good job of laying out the case for taking abstract object discourse as figurative, but he does not examine the comparative explanatory power of other anti-Platonistic views with respect to the data. So more work needs to be done. Perhaps a doctoral thesis uh, in the offering there. As for explanatory puzzles generated by figuralism, Yablo considers only the objection that abstract object talk, particularly mathematical discourse, is not plausibly a matter of make-believe. This objection, however, is really an objection to a pretense theolo theoretical analysis of figurative language in terms of make-believe, not to the figuralist thesis that abstract object talk is figurative. Consideration of such a puzzle is therefore better reserved for another time when discussing pretense theories and theories of uh, pretending. So let us consider instead an objection that has been raised against figuralism by John Burgess and Gideon Rosen. They think the claim that mathematical discourse is figurative is implausible. They write, certainly in all clear cases of figurative language, and it is worth stressing that the boundary between figurative and literal is as fuzzy as can be, the non-literal character of the linguistic performance will be perfectly obvious as soon as the speaker is forced to turn attention to the question of whether the remark was met literally. We further submit that mathematical discourse fails this test for non-literalness. Now one is tempted to ask what evidence can be provided in support of their opening sentence, but never mind. The more important point is that this objection, even if sound, at best proves that mathematical discourse is not a clear case of figurative language, a hardly surprising result. What does not follow is that mathematical discourse does not lie somewhere in that fuzzy area between clearly figurative and clearly literal expressions. The second and perhaps more important point to make is that while Yablo, like Lewis, espouses figuralism as a hermeneutic thesis about how mathematicians themselves understand their discourse, there is no reason that the anti-realist has to present it as such. In the absence of linguistic and sociological studies about what the community of working mathematicians think about this question, the figuralist can remain agnostic about the hermeneutical questions and present the figurative interpretation simply as one reasonable way of understanding abstract object talk. If such an interpretation is reasonable, then the indispensability argument has been defeated. 
Turn now to question one. What are the alleged explanatory benefits of Platonism? The principal merit claimed on behalf of Platonism is that it provides a basis for the objective truth of mathematics. But here the difference between fictionalism and figuralism comes to the fore. Figuralism affirms the truth of mathematical sentences, for these are figurative speech and as such escape the traditional criterion of ontological commitment. Just as the sentence, it's raining cats and dogs, can be true without there being animals falling from the sky, so the truth that one plus one equals two does not require the reality of numbers. Of course, the theistic figuralist who does not believe in abstract objects will deny the literal truth of figurative talk about abstract objects, but he will insist on the truth of such statements when understood not literally but figuratively. Still, we may wonder what the objective basis of mathematical truths is, if not the reality of the objects referred to or quantified over in such sentences. Here, Yablo seems to differ from Lewis, who seemed to think that we could explain mathematical metaphors only in terms of more metaphors. Yablo maintains that the real content of mathematical truths is logical truths, which require no ontological foundation. He says, arithmetic is at the level of real content a body of logical truths, specifically logical truths about cardinality. While set theory consists at the level of real content of logical truths of a combinatorial nature. In short, the realist has no advantage over the anti-realist in accounting for the objectivity of mathematical truth since the real content of metaphorical statements about such imaginary entities as numbers and sets is logical truths. Finally, as for the explanatory benefits of figuralism, although Yablo has benefits of his own in mind, surely for the theist the most important benefit is that it explains how to reconcile mathematical truth with divine aseity. The theist has good reasons for thinking that Platonism is false and may embrace figuralism's account of mathematics necessity, a priority, and absoluteness without compromising his anti-realism about abstracta. In sum, it seems to me that figuralism is a plausible option for the theist to pursue as a means of defeating the indispensability argument for Platonism. It offers an interpretation of abstract object discourse which is figurative, not literal, thereby avoiding ontological commitment while preserving truth. Figuralism has the additional advantage of being a very plausible interpretation of mathematical discourse in view of the striking similarities of such discourse to figurative speech. Figuralism thus offers an attractive solution to the challenge of Platonism to God's being the sole ultimate reality.
What figuralism does leave unchallenged, though, is the Quinean meta-ontological criterion for ontological commitment, which comes to expression in premise one of the indispensability argument. Some might see this as an advantage to figuralism, since it places figuralism on common ground concerning customary views of quantification and reference. Other theists, however, will see this strategy as timid and insufficiently radical. These other anti-realists will dare to assail the sanctuary of Quinean meta-ontology itself. Thank you very much. All right, we're open to um, any discussion that you might have. Yeah, so we have 20 minutes for questions. Um, if you can speak up, that would be very helpful if we don't have a rolling microphone so that we can hear you when you ask the questions. I'm sure that'll generate lots of uh, interest. So if you raise your hands, you can, yeah. yeah uh, I'm not sure uh, for Yablo, what is the truth maker of uh, mathematical statements. So I know that he thinks that mathematical statements don't have to be true. Uh, I mean, the fact that they are true doesn't mean that there must be mathematical objects. So uh, you don't have to have uh, mathematical objects as truth maker of mathematical statements. Yes. But then he refers to uh, logic, right? That was what I dealt with in the portion near the end about the real content of mathematical sentences. He takes them to be purely logical truths, which therefore require no ontology. For example, 2 plus 3 equals 5, he would say, is just a metaphorical or figurative way of expressing the fact that if there are two things that are f, and there are three things that are g, and no thing that is f is g, then there are five things that are either f or g. It's just a purely mathematical or purely logical truth of first order logic. So he would see set theory and arithmetic as not making any sort of metaphysical commitments. They're just purely logical truths. Can we, have, can we then ask the question of uh, what's the truth maker of logical statements? Well, there, if you mean is there, is there some sort of ontology in virtue of which they're true, there isn't any. The, the purely logical truths are just, in that sense, trivial. They're, they're, they don't have an ontology. So, I mean, what you could say is there, if, if you want to have a truth maker, in virtue of what are they true, they're just virt true in virtue of the meaning of the symbols that are used in the sentence. There isn't any sort of thing that, in, in virtue of which a purely logical truth is true. Yes, Ryan? From the theist uh, philosophers that I've talked to, the attraction of Platonism uh, that I've sensed has been uh, that we see the world ordered in the language of mathematics. And we ourselves explore mathematics being made of the image and likeness of God. And so it seems there's some relation to the divine mind, the divine image, and the language of mathematics. Yes. And so, do you think figurativism, or figuralism, pardon me, uh, can account for 
how the divine mind speaks in the language of mathematics. I, I hadn't thought of that uh, question. I don't think that obviously this view addresses these kinds of theological questions. That this is a theistic appropriation of a view that's proposed by a thinker who has no interest in theology or philosophy of religion whatsoever, so far as I know. But I could well imagine that a person who believes that human rationality and logical thinking is a reflection of the logos, who is God and was God in the beginning, that this would be part of the image of God in human beings, that we think God's thoughts after him in the sense that we are rational, we can use the rules of logical inference and so forth, and that these are reflective of God himself, because God is the ultimately rational mind, the logos. So I, I do think there's rich theology to be mined there for um, a, a doctrine of human beings in the image of God, but I don't think it, it flows out of figuralism as opposed to some other sort of view. Yes? Yeah, thanks very much for your, your talk. It's very uh, stimulating. So I guess my question is about sort of modality. So um, so I just want, so I know, I don't know whether Diablo tries to apply his kind of approach to modality, but since sort of in so many analyses of God's properties, sort of omniscient, uh, sorry, omnipotence especially, right, mm -hmm. uh, appeal to modal concepts is coming in hugely there. So it looks like you don't want to just get rid of modal truth making. No, so no. What, what, well, yeah, well. <clears throat> I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. Go ahead. Well, no, so, okay. So I just think, so, I mean, it, if you don't want to take that kind of Plantinga sort of, um, you know, possible worlds as abstract objects through, and you probably don't want to take the David Lewis kind of possible worlds as concrete objects. Right. So, I don't, yeah, so what, I'm just wondering what, what you might yeah. say there. This is a project that Brian Leftow is pursuing here at Oxford University and has recently published this massive book uh, in which he argues for God as a grounding for modality. The project that I am working on isn't exactly the same. It, it, in Brian's book, he identifies two projects that he's pursuing. The main project is the one you mentioned, to provide a grounding for modality, for the necessity or contingency, or even possibility of propositions. And then a secondary aspect of his book, he said, will be accounting for the existence of abstract objects and um, meeting the challenge of Platonism. His secondary project is my main project, and I am not really interested in exploring a theory for grounding modality. If, if he can come up with a theory the grounds modality in God, great, I, I'm all for it. But the, the question I'm more interested in is the secondary one. How do we meet the challenge to divine aseity um, and creation ex nihilo that, is, uh, that arises from these abstract objects? So I think these two projects are quite different, quite separate, and that you don't need to pursue the modal project in order to have a good answer to the existence problem. Yes, in the blue. 
usually when you uh, defend the moral argument for the existence of God, you appeal to our perception of a certain moral realm of values and duties. So how would you relate uh, these uh, moral values and duties uh, to the existence of abstract objects? Are they abstract objects that come from God? Or are they merely metaphors? Right, exactly. It's a very good question. And I think that the view on moral values that I've expressed fits very well with the view that I'm defending about abstract objects. We don't want to say, I think, that things like justice, goodness, fair play, loyalty, as well as things like vice, greediness, rapacity, and so forth, are some sort of abstract platonic objects that exist out there, certainly not independently of God, but even out there on their own causally dependent on God. Rather, I would see moral values as paradigmatically expressed in God's own character. It is God who is good, just, kind, loyal, and so forth, and who disapproves of these other vices and so forth, so that Morality is grounded in a concrete object who is God himself, not in some sort of a platonic object. So I think this fits in very well with the, the view of modal, or morality that, um, that I've described it in other places. Let me take a question near the back. Yes, that's right, in the striped shirt. Yes. When you use the term Platonism, uh, you're talking about the view that I understand Plato himself held, right, that there are these abstract things that exist sort of independently in themselves. But then, as you, as you say, Philo locates those within the Logos, within the mind of God. The entire, what's normally called Christian Platonist tradition, does this, right? So yes. even, I think, Plotinus in some sense did that, didn't he? So, so I mean, well, you're using the word Platonism for something that you say is opposed to Christian faith, but there is this very robust, what's normally called Christian Platonist tradition, which would say that the, 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 there are the divine ideas which exist within God. Aquinas would say there, it's God knowing himself as imitable by creatures. Uh, and, and I don't see you, maybe just because I'm a church historian, not a philosopher, I don't see you really engaging with that tradition in ways that I can make sense of. All right, let's address this because this is important. I'm trying to, in my exegetical work, do a responsible exegesis of the historical and cultural background of the prologue to the fourth gospel, as well as some of Paul's correspondence. And clearly the background to those is not to be found in later Neoplatonism, like Plotinus, this is centuries later. It's to be found in this school called Middle Platonism that is represented by people like Philo. And I think it is this middle Platonism that forms the backdrop for much of the New Testament talk about God as the source of all being. And it was in Hellenistic Jewish thought, like Philo's, that the realm of Platonic objects was taken into the mind of God. And just as the mind of the architect conceives of the plan of the city before it is built, so God has this mental construct of the world on the basis of which then he constructs the physical world. And that tradition out of Philo, I think, is, is behind the New Testament. And then it does get explicitly picked up by people like Augustine. And so that was why I said Frege, remember, the 19th century philosopher had somehow overlooked this historic Christian position 
of divine conceptualism. That's what you're talking about. That's not Platonism. Uh, that's divine conceptualism, where what were formerly thought to be abstract objects in a heavenly realm or a Platonic realm are now instead thought to be concepts or thoughts in the divine mind. So I, I definitely have addressed this area. That is divine conceptualism. I, I mean, I thought that was what you you're referring to, divine conceptualism. I suppose your, your description of it, then you talk about objections to it. You know, you're talking about propositions, for instance, does God have these, these sort of verbal thoughts? Yes. Well, someone like Aquinas would say, well, you know, language is human. It's our reflection of the divine mind. It's not yes. that God is sort of linguistically thinking, right, these verbal expressions, but that all human language, all human names that we, that we use are reflections of that which is one simple reality of God. So I guess we get into divine simplicity here, perhaps. Exactly. And that's your, your objection is entirely warranted and just right. I am giving you the tip of the iceberg here tonight. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much I've had to cut to get this down to within an hour. Um, but I am interacting with the work of contemporary conceptualists like Greg Welty, who wrote under Swinburne here at Oxford, uh, who is a prominent contemporary conceptualist. Leftow kind of hints around at conceptualism, though I, I think, as I say in my review of his book, I think he's really a fictionalist, but he, he, he does use a lot of conceptualist moves. So I'm interacting with those folks, but certainly the, the neo-Thomist is at liberty to say, wait a minute, this talk of a divine, of a plurality of divine thoughts is just human uh, representation of the divine mind. In fact, the divine mind is simple, and there isn't a plurality of propositional thoughts on God's part. God is his essence, and his essence is simple, and therefore this problem won't arise. And so in dealing with a fuller discussion, obviously one is going to have to interact with that Thomistic tradition, absolutely. Yes, back here. Um, I'd probably follow you with the mathematical type thing. I'm just wondering, you talked about essence there. Would you take essence, if you want it in your ontology, in a anti-realist view or a realist view? All right, this is where I have really struggled with terminology. As I said, anti-realism usually goes under the name nominalism. But as you perhaps know, nominalism is a dirty word in theology and in the history of theology. And what goes under the name of nominalism among contemporary philosophers has nothing to do with historic nominalism in theology. And so I have been casting about looking for some other label for this than nominalism because I don't want to write or do or say anything that would lead people to think, for example, that God is not essentially good or that God is not essentially omnipotent. I'm not a nominalist in the sense of denying that God has essential properties. Now, where I would be a nominalist would be saying I'm not a realist about properties, but I, I certainly do want to affirm the truth that necessarily God is omnipotent, necessarily God is good, necessarily human beings are rational animals. So it will just be a matter of affirming these truths 
but without saying in an ontologically heavy way, there are properties, there are these essences, or, or to make clear that one is using figurative language and saying that God exemplifies the property of goodness, I'm speaking figuratively there, right? I'm using the figure of speech of exemplifying a property. And that shouldn't be understood as a metaphysically literal assertion that there is this thing, this, this object, goodness, to which God stands in this mysterious relation of, of exemplification. Do you see what I mean? So that's part of the difficulty. Now, now anti-realism is a good name because it contrasts so nicely with realism and ah-realism. You get a nice trichotomy there. But then some postmodernist is going to come along and think you're an anti-realist about God or, or something of that sort. And of course, that's not what, it, what is meant. So one can only hope here that one's readers and interpreters will be sympathetic rather than um, malicious in how they construe what one is saying. So, so if I was to say that all of us exemplify humanity or have the essence of that, would you say that's just figurative speech or a fetus exemplifies humanity? I, let, let's drop the word just, okay? Because that, that, see, that's sort of pejorative. I would say, yeah, that's figurative speech to say that you exemplify the essence of rational animality. That is a figurative way of saying that you are essentially rational and animal. And that I can say literally. God is essentially good. Um, but, but so it's kind of like the real content of the, the metaphorical talk of having a property or exemplifying an essence. Yes, down here in the front. I'm, I'm attracted to your case for figuralism and, and fictionalism, but what I can't quite see is how it doesn't collapse into divine conceptualism if you're a theist. But if you're a theist, you can see you might have an edge over the naturalist who's a fictionalist, because you've got a story about how it is that there's this isomorphism between the admittedly false mathematical story or <coughs> what we're talking about and the empirical world. But I suspect you want to say that as a theist because, well, it was part of God's creative intentions that he should create an empirical world that is susceptible to being organized in these aesthetically uh, convenient and, and simplifying and unifying ways. But then I can't see how that's not conceptualism because what you're doing is you're saying that the full story that we're telling ourselves is actually, I think it's probably what Ryan was getting at earlier, that the full story is actually picking out God's concept-informed creative intentions. But if that's the case, it's only fictionalism in the sense that, yes, there's no literal reference to abstract objects, but there is a reference to something that's true, namely God's creative blueprint for creation. Well, I certainly, as a figuralist or a fictionalist, would want to say that God has thoughts about 2 plus 2 equals 4, and um, thoughts about that it is good to love your neighbor as yourself. Of course God has thoughts like that, but the figuralist or fictionalist will not go the route of saying that thought in God's mind is the number 2, or that is the number 4. And that is very different. Uh, there you're saying the number two is 
this thought in the divine mind. So when I think the number two, that's not the same thought because that's in my mind, that's not in God's mind. And, and so the fictionalist or figuralist will definitely want to say things like, God has created the physical universe on the pattern of the mathematical structure that the world is imbued with. I, in fact, I've argued for that, uh, for theism, on the basis of the uncanny applicability of mathematics to the physical world. So he will want to affirm that, but he just won't say that therefore these mathematical objects are these thoughts in God's mind. But not even Quine thought that there were these the indispensability arguments took you to these different kinds of I mean as far as I can Well he 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 got sets. He got sets he, he, he thought that there were sets and he was a hard-nosed atheistic naturalist and he he felt that the best scientific theories committed us to mathematical objects. And he could reduce some of them to others, like he could reduce numbers to sets, but you couldn't get rid of sets. So here's old Quine, this hard-nosed naturalist, believing in these transcendent, non-physical, non-empirical realities uh, uh, that are mathematical objects. So he, he was committed to, to them ontologically, even though he felt very uncomfortable about it. Mm -hmm. The point is there could be, you could have a kind of a modified conceptualism that just says, well, whatever it was that was going on in God's mind behind those creative intentions that made it be the case that these empirical phenomena yes. are susceptible to being explained and organized in these fictional ways, that's what we're picking out. All right, although you're going to need to unpack that and, and tell us what that is, and I'm open to that. For me, I want to let a thousand flowers bloom. What I, what, what is unacceptable to me is Platonism. Right. But I would be delighted if the divine conceptualist can overcome the worries that I shared and enunciate a, a, a defensible view. I just want contemporary theists, my colleagues, to take another look at these anti-realist options. I am astonished at the potpourri of anti-realisms that are available today, many of which I think are very plausible, and yet they tend to just be ignored, uh, almost unknown by most Christian philosophers who are writing today. Thank you. Okay, so I think we should draw to a close. Then. All right. Thank you very much. So let's thank uh, Dr. Craig. Thank you. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.